You're listening to The Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Hey folks, before we get started today, we want to give one last call for our April class. The Bible is not a sex book. It isn't. It's not a sex book, which is happening live tomorrow, April 25th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Yeah, and it's led by our nerd in residence, Anna Segus Beal, and the class is, as always, pay what you can, but only until the class ends, and after that, it will be $25 to download. If you can't make it live, no worries. You can still sign up during the pay what you can window, and then you can just watch the recording later. So for more information and to sign up, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash sex book. But if you want access to all of our classes, courses, ad-free podcast episodes, you can become a member of our community, the Society of Normal People, for just $12 a month at thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. What's happening today, Jared? On today's episode, we're talking about the cosmic battle in 2 Corinthians with Dr. Lisa Bowen. Yeah, and Lisa is an associate professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary, and she's the author of An Apostle in Battle, Paul and Spiritual Warfare in 2 Corinthians 12, 1 to 10, and also African-American readings of Paul, Reception, Resistance, and Transformation. Two different books. Two different books by the same author who we're about to talk to. Yes. Let's get into it. These texts that have an understanding of the world in which you have angels, you have Satan, you have demonic entities, human and supernatural beings sharing social space. So there's this sense that the natural world affects the supernatural and the supernatural world affects the natural. And we're all interconnected. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and She said, can I try some? And so I I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com, promo code normal people. All right. Welcome to the podcast, Lisa. It's great to have you. I'm excited for the conversation. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. We want to get specific about a particular passage, but, you know, we talk a lot about context. So let's start with the context of 2 Corinthians as a whole. What is it about? What's going on? Yeah, that's a great question. So there is a lot happening in this letter. And because there's so much happening in this letter, you have some scholars who posit that this letter is made up of more than one letter. But I tend to think that this is one letter, even though there's a lot happening in this correspondence. So some of the themes of the letter that Paul forefronts right off the bat is the character of God. Who is God? And he talks about God as the God of comfort in the first chapter. God is the one who raises the dead. God is the giver of the Holy Spirit. 
God as the one who is victorious. So right off the bat, at the beginning of the letter, Paul forefronts the character of God. So I think the character of God is one important theme of the letter. Another important theme is ecclesiology. What does the community of God look like or what should it look like? And Paul talks in this letter about believers praying for each other, sharing and comfort, but also sharing and suffering. He also talks in the letter, chapters eight through nine, about sharing resources, how believers support one another in times of need. So ecclesiology is another important theme in the letter. Affliction and suffering of believers is an important theme. In that opening chapter, Paul talks about his own experience of suffering. And he talks about it in terms of it was such a bad experience that he did not think he was going to live and he was going to survive. And so, again, right at the beginning of the letter, suffering and affliction of believers is forefronted. And you see that theme recurring throughout the letter as well. As Paul says, we carry in our body the dying of Jesus in chapter four. So that theme of suffering and affliction occurs throughout the letter. Again, you see it in the latter part of the letter as well. And another important theme is what I consider significant is an apocalyptic cosmic conflict that Paul forefronts in this letter where you have the presence of martial imagery in the letter, which Paul uses to describe this cosmic conflict taking place between God and Satan and how believers and really all of humanity is kind of caught up in this conflict. So that's another important theme. And then I'll just say one more, the theme of epistemology, knowledge. How do we know God? and also knowledge of God. So epistemology is about knowing how we come to know and the knowledge of God. So this is another theme that keeps coming up in the letter. Um, In chapter two, Paul talks about how he and other apostles are being led in this triumphal procession and that God spreads divine knowledge through them. Um, In chapter five, there's this different way of knowing in light of the Christ event. And then you you see in chapter 10 and chapter 12, this opposition to knowledge of God. So epistemology or knowledge is a very important theme in the letter. And if I can squeeze in one more. Absolutely, yes. (laughs) Anthropology. What does it mean to be human in this letter? And I think you see one of the things that Paul forefronts is this understanding of human beings as fragile, as vulnerable and susceptible to superhuman forces. And so that theme is important because you see it recur again and again in the letter, but Paul juxtaposes the human frailty or the human weakness with God's power and God's strength. As someone who grew up in a more charismatic tradition, like the speaking in tongues and the supernatural and all that, this is all tracking. That makes sense that Second Corinthians was kind of an important yeah, letter in right. the tradition. So that's... Yeah. Yes. And speaking of which, you know, you've written on chapter 12, verses 1 to 10, among other things. You know, when in my Bible is taught, these little subheadings the editors put in, Paul's visions and revelations. So let's... Can we focus on that now? Let's get into that. And... 
maybe a way to start talking about it is, can you just run us through the content of those 10 verses? What is it basically about? Yeah. So a lot's happening in those 10 verses, right? It's packed. It sure is. Yeah. Yeah. So Paul, he begins those verses talking about, well, he begins it like in third person, right? And one of the reasons I think he does that is we have to remember that these letters were read out loud. And so right before chapter 12, he's talking about how he escapes from Aratos, the ethnarch. And then he goes into chapter 12 about a person in Christ. And I think he's doing that for a narratological reason and in a sense, keeping his audience in suspense is the same person who has gone through all these things in chapter 11. He's been stoned. He's been shipwrecked. Is this the same person that now experiences these revelations in Christ? You you know, Lisa, I just have to throw this in here if you don't (laughs) mind. I'm so glad you put it that way because my inclination, and I'm not trying to be funny here, but every time I see this, I think of post-game interviews with NBA players. We talk about themselves in the third person, which is sometimes ego, but this is not ego. Right. Right. You're not saying this is not ego on Paul's part. This is there's something else happening here. Yes, definitely. And I think one of the interesting things is so he's in the third person when he talks about this person going to the third heaven. And then when he goes back to talking about weakness, he goes back to the first person. So I think that's really interesting. So you have this this language of visions and revelations. Paul says he's not sure, this person's not sure whether they were in the body or out of the body. He has a language of the third heaven. And this person hears unspeakable words, caught up into paradise, things that this person can't share. But then when you get into verse five, he goes on to kind of reveal who this person is, right? That it is actually him. And I think when you think of what comes before this chapter, all the things that he's gone through, what some scholars call the parastasis catalogs, where he lists all these hardships, all these trials and tribulations in chapter 11, 12 fits in because all of those catalogs demonstrate his weakness and suffering for the sake of the gospel and God's power to preserve him in that. Chapter 12 fits in there because it's another example of Paul suffering for the sake of the gospel, but God's power prevailing on his behalf. So I think it's it's really interesting how when you look at chapter 12 in light of what comes before, it does give you a different sense of what's happening in these really profound verses where there's so much action taking place. So maybe I can rephrase what you're saying and, and you can tell me if this if I'm capturing this. I really appreciate the dramatic effect. So what I hear you saying is chapter 11 is suffering and all of these trials and tribulations. And then it's almost as though the first four verses of chapter 12 are this fulcrum where for dramatic effect now, he's sort of saying the person who went through all of that, we don't know yet, but there is a person then it's almost like it changes direction in a very drastic way. Here's all my sufferings and here's all this. You know what? I know a man who went through all of this visions and being caught up in things that, that this person can't even talk about. It was so glorious or exuberant or, you know, these visions and revelations and it's only four verses. And then it goes right back in, from verse five, talking about weaknesses. And now back to the first person. 
And so it, it almost feels like those first four verses of chapter 12 at the beginning are sort of the, the crux of it. But how would you, like, you know what I mean? Like, it almost feels like it's sandwiched between these two suffering passages. So it's almost like trying to highlight, it seems like, these first four verses in some sense or for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I think all of these verses in chapter, first 10 verses of chapter 12 highlight, and maybe this is a good way for me to segue into how I relate this passage to the larger themes of the letter. Because as I said a few minutes ago, one of the themes of the letter is this knowledge of God and um, how human beings obtain this knowledge of God. And earlier in the letter, Paul talks about the gospel, right? And so for Paul, part of the knowledge of God is the gospel. And one of the things that's happening in the Corinthian congregation is that you have these missionaries. Um, some people call these people opponents of Paul. He calls them servants of Satan. But you have these people who have come into the Corinthian congregation who, from Paul's perspective, they are opposing the true gospel, the gospel of God. And throughout the letter, you see Paul calling the Corinthians to adhere to the true gospel that he has preached to them. And you also have this depiction of Satan as this entity that opposes knowledge of God. So when Paul gets to chapter 12, he's kind of already laid the groundwork of, okay, there's a cosmic conflict going on between God and Satan. Satan is one who he says in chapter two, verse 11, tries to take advantage of human beings. Okay. So that connects to the depiction of human beings as susceptible and vulnerable. 2.11, Satan tries to take advantage of believers. 4.4, the God of this age, Satan blinds the minds of unbelievers. Chapter 11, he's afraid that the Corinthians' minds are being deceived by Satan. So you get this picture of the satanic realm or the satanic entity as one that opposes knowledge of God. And so when you get to chapter 12, oh yes, this person who's gone through all these tribulations, all of these trials, God preserves Paul through all of this. And yet this same person is privileged to have these visions and revelations. And yet God preserves Paul in the midst of this, but you also have this messenger of Satan, this enemy who attempts to thwart Paul's ascent. So you have another demonstration of the resume of Paul, if you will. Once again, Paul is trying to oppose the knowledge of God, oppose Paul gaining revelation and knowledge of God. Mm-hmm. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary, 
and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret if you're a listener of the podcast how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes. But we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. So while we're on that, a question that many people have is this messenger of Satan in verse, was it seven, that a thorn was given me in the flesh. Mm-hmm. Pardon the pun, but can you flesh that out a little bit, <laughs> what that means? I like to say I'm contributing to the conversation okay. <laughs> about the thorn in the flesh, right? Because, I mean, that has been debated for centuries. What is this thorn? And so typically people talk about the thorn is an illness. Perhaps Paul suffers. Some interpreters say uh, the thorn are the opponents. So you have a range of ideas of what the thorn is. My interpretation based upon I put Paul's ascent in conversation with other ascent texts of the period. So in my book, I also look at Daniel. I look at Apocalypse of Abraham. I look at Martyrdom and Ascension of Isaiah. So I look at other heavenly ascent texts and also earthly descents where you have heavenly entities coming down to earth. And one of the things I notice in a number of those ascents is that you have opposition, you have conflict in the heavenly realms often. So for example, in Daniel, you know, Daniel is praying and the angel finally comes to Daniel. He says, I would have been here sooner. He comes to Daniel 21 days after Daniel starts praying. And the angel tells him, I would have been here sooner, but I was engaged in a battle. And so you have a sent text where there is this sense of conflict in the heavenly realms. So when I put Paul's ascent in conversation with these other ascent texts, When I see him talking about this messenger of Satan, this thorn in the flesh, and he says this entity was given to him so that I might not be lifted up, so that I may not be lifted up. So a number of people take that phrase to 
say, so Paul gets this thorn in the flesh so he won't be lifted up in pride. But when you look at other ascent texts, and I do look at parts of the book of Watchers in First Enoch, that verb is used to talk about being lifted up physically, like lifted up to the heavens, not lifted up in pride. So I interpret this passage that Paul is saying, this messenger of Satan, this thorn in the flesh was given to him, not by God, but actually comes from Satan to keep him from being lifted up to receive revelations from God. The other piece to that too, though, is the term scallops, which we translate as thorn in the flesh. That is a martial term. It's a military term. So Paul, in my view, is depicting this experience as warfare, right? He's depicting it as warfare, which corresponds to the other martial terms he's already used in the letter. So I, as I say, I'm contributing to the conversation. <laughs> it's a different way of reading this passage, but I think in light of what we see happening in the rest of the letter, and in light of what we see happening in other ascent texts, to me, it's a plausible reading of what's happening and why Paul relates this experience. It could be easily seen that, you know, he talks in earlier verses about boasting and th this pride boastfulness does kind of go into the strengths, weaknesses conversation. So what's the sense here of what, what he means by that if we go with uh, the lifted up physically? Is it that he had been lifted up, he had these visions and revelations, and then he was kept from having more from this thorn in the flesh or the messenger of Satan? I think what Paul is depicting here is the attempt of this messenger of Satan to keep him from being lifted up. But this messenger, this angelic figure, demonic figure, is not successful. Oh, okay, okay. I missed that part. I see. So that ultimately, the first four verses of chapter 12, talking about that is really his triumph over yes, this thorn yes. in the flesh. Thank you. Okay, okay. I mean, the, the military language of thorn, I mean, is there a better way of maybe translating that? Like, is it like a spear or a sword or something, or just something martial, something generally warfare-ish? Hmm, that's a really good question. I mean, you you see that elsewhere. I just think it's interesting that, to me, it, that alone puts this in a very different light for me. And then I, I'm struggling with a messenger of Satan, because, you know, that whole genitive of thing in Greek can be very tricky. But I guess that means something like a messenger that Satan sends, right? Something like that. Yeah, that's the way I take it. But I take it, the messenger that Satan sends, I take that as some kind of angelic, demonic, angelic being. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Okay. And then the thorn, it could be sort of like, Satan sent a messenger, an enemy to keep me from having these visions and revelations, but they were not triumphant. Right. 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 Okay. Yeah. Right. So, I mean, to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly and, and our listeners too, your reading of these 10 verses is to put this in the context of cosmic spiritual warfare, mm -hmm. right? And yes. you're also, you bring chapter 10 into this as well. Could we go there and just help us understand how these two sections of Second Corinthians might elucidate and help us understand what Paul's after? So... 
when you think about martial imagery and scripture, a lot of people go to 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 6. If I could just read it real quick. Yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah. For although we walk in the flesh, we do not wage, and this is my translation. For although we walk in the flesh, we do not wage a war campaign according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not fleshly, but mighty through God for the destruction of strongholds, destroying reasonings and every high entity being raised against the knowledge of God and capturing every mind for the obedience of Christ. So when you think about, when people think about martial imagery in 2 Corinthians, I think for the most part, most people go to these verses because you have strongholds, you have weapons of our warfare, you have destroying reasonings, you have all this, you know, wait, not waging a war campaign, you have all of this military imagery. But one of the things I try to do in this book is to talk about, well, yes, this is an important passage when it comes to thinking about martial imagery, but Paul doesn't leave this language behind after chapter 10. And so you see the occurrence of military imagery after chapter 10. You see it in chapter 11. You see it in chapter 12 with the ascent text. So what I try to do is show how the warfare that Paul talks about in chapter 10 continues throughout the rest of the letter, and it comes to a heightened expression in his ascent account because the ascent account becomes another demonstration of what this spiritual warfare, if you will, entails. It's about opposing knowledge of God, opposing the gospel. So I try to show a connection between 12 and 10. And in my subsequent work after this book, I've looked at martial imagery even earlier in the letter. So it's a theme that really begins, I think, from early on in the letter, chapter two, all the way to chapter 12. What this makes me think of is this broader context of apocalypticism that we have to remember our New Testament is written in, in the broader culture. But what you're saying makes it seem like 2 Corinthians is maybe even more acutely apocalyptic than other New Testament books that are maybe more generically, it's sort of in the air, it's it's part of the culture. But this seems to be really playing into some of the more direct themes of apocalypticism, you know, bringing up things like uh, Daniel, and I'm just seeing it more clearly. And that helps also, I think, bolster your argument to think that, yeah, if that's more acutely where Paul's coming from, there probably are a lot of tie-ins to this military language and spiritual warfare throughout the book. So I think that's helpful for listeners and readers of the Bible. Is it fair to say it's more acutely apocalyptic just in general? Yeah, well, I, well, that's one of the things I want my work to do is to lift up and, you know, apocalyptic. I'm aware that it's a weighted term, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and, but the way I'm using it is how you just described it. I'm using it to talk about a cosmic conflict, You know, there are people who use it to talk about other things, but I'm using it to talk about a cosmic conflict between God and Satan. And I'm using it, connecting that kind of understanding of apocalyptic to actual apocalyptic literature. So, you know, apocalyptic literature like Daniel, um, Apocalypse of Abraham, these texts that 
have an understanding of the world that Paul shares. This understanding of the world in which you have angels, you have Satan, you have demonic entities. And I like the way Lawrence Stuckenbrook talks about it. He talks about it in the sense of human and supernatural beings sharing social space. So there's this sense that it's all, you know, that the natural world affects the supernatural and the supernatural world affects the natural and we're all interconnected. And so I think you see that in Second Corinthians. And it's one of the things I try to do in my work is to lift up these apocalyptic or cosmic tendencies or depictions that Paul is very much forefronting in this correspondence. And so if I may say this real quick, one of the things I found when I was writing this book was there are a number of common interpretations of the letter. One is that this letter is mostly Paul defending his apostleship. It's mostly about him defending his apostleship against these super apostles. And he's trying to make a case for himself to the Corinthians. So that's one common interpretation. The other common interpretation is when you get to chapter 12, another common interpretation is that while this kind of experience, it really isn't significant for Paul. He only shares it because these super apostles are sharing their experiences. And so he's like, okay, I have to share mine to try to show that I do have these experiences as well. But he shares it, many of these interpreters say, only to say it's not important. And so one of the things I'm trying to do is to say, okay, maybe he is defending his apostleship, but I think there's more going on in this letter than that, right? So one of the things I try to say is let's broaden our perspective on what this letter is about. And that Paul is really forefronting this cosmic contest for the Corinthians. And he's trying to help them see, look, there's more going on here than these super apostles. We have to look at what power is operating behind them. And we have to be aware of this conflict that's going on, this larger conflict. And so he shares this experience, not because it's not significant, But in fact, because it is significant, it actually demonstrates from his own life what he's been telling the Corinthians all along in the letter. Yes, I wonder if he is defending his apostleship because they're living in an apocalyptic moment. And I mean, that makes sense to me because I actually struggle with 2 Corinthians because Paul seems a little bit over the top defensive at times, but it might be the moment that they're in. And the New Testament is an apocalyptic text. <laughs> you know, it's, you can't escape it. So I don't think you need much of an excuse to sort of see where things intersect with apocalypticism, especially in Paul. Lisa, can you take us down that road a little bit? Because I think it'd be helpful to understand more there's a cosmic battle going on, but what's really at stake? And you you talked about, you know, opposing the knowledge of God. So this thorn in the flesh, this enemy has created an obstacle so that Paul can't be lifted up to gain these revelations, which is really about knowledge of God or knowledge of the gospel. Do we get a sense in Second Corinthians what the content of this knowledge of God is that is being opposed? Because I, I also think there's something tied together here with Paul trying to gain knowledge, and that's an important part of, of the gospel for him in some form or fashion, but maybe you can maybe put that together for us a little better. Yeah. So early on in the letter, Paul does 
talk about the knowledge of God being displayed through him and the other apostles through this processional imagery, how God spreads divine knowledge through them. So I think on one hand for Paul, the knowledge of God is the gospel, right? It's the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. It's the gospel. And so I think from his understanding, there is a concerted effort on the part of anti-God powers to try to stop the gospel from going forth in the world. And so in 4.4, he talks about the God of this age blinding the minds of unbelievers so that the light of the gospel cannot shine forth for them. So I think there is a sense from Paul's perspective that Satan is trying to stop the gospel from going forth in the world. And so when you get to chapter 12, Paul gives this example from his own life for the Corinthians to see that he himself has experienced this kind of opposition from the satanic realm. But he triumphs through the grace and the power of God. So as a sense of sharing with them, yes, I've experienced opposition in so many forms in my life even from the supernatural realm in the sense of this thorn in the flesh, but know that God still wins. God still triumphs. So I think part of it is this example from his own life to share with the Corinthians, but it's also to show that the anti-God powers do not win. The gospel still triumphs. And it's interesting, I mean, the way you bring out, I think, chapter four, how... And I, th- I think for Paul, if I can enter Paul's mind, which is impossible, but I'll do it anyway <laughs> for sake of discussion. Um, I think Jesus was obvious to him because of his experience. He had an experience of Christ. And, you know, we know, at least I think we know from maybe like Romans and other places that Paul really struggles with how people aren't getting this. And so an apocalyptic worldview is like ready and waiting almost to cite as the reason why. This is an attack. This is a satanic attack clouding the minds of people because why don't they just see it the way that I see it? And so he's defending his apostleship maybe. I'm learning about 2 Corinthians here talking to you because I've been confused about some things and how it hangs together, but this is really very helpful. Can I ask before, if you're prepared to do this, because I know you're working on stuff at this point, but you mentioned chapter 2 of like martial imagery going back there. And I think if you're prepared to maybe just, what is that martial imagery there? Because it would really help, I think, it's a theme in the letter almost, right? I mean, that's really what you're saying. And let's get more of that theme to give hooks for people to hang thoughts on as they read this book. Yeah, that's a great question. So in chapter two, verse 11 This verse appears after he has this conversation about this person who, and we don't know what this person has done, but in some way they've done something wrong in the community. He tells the Corinthians, forgive them, who you forgive, I forgive. And then he goes on in verse 11 to say, you know, we want to make sure we kind of take this person back in to the community because we don't want to be taken advantage of by Satan in verse 11. And he goes on to say, because we're not ignorant of Satan's designs or Satan's schemes. So that gives you a picture, a beginning picture of how he's going to talk about Satan in the rest of the letter. So this entity 
wants to take advantage of human beings and also has designs or schemes. I wish she would have fleshed that out a little bit more. Like, what do you mean by that? But we do get a glimpse and just in that verse of how he thinks about Satan. And so that verb there of taking advantage of, that is often used in martial contexts to talk about um, military strategies, the strategies that commanders or generals use to kind of map out how they're going to undertake an operation. So you get that imagery in chapter 11, and you also get it again in chapter four, when Paul lays out again, this parastasis catalog about how he is afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken. He goes on in that list And what's interesting, so this is work I've done since the book, but what's interesting, these terms are often used to describe how soldiers experience warfare. So that theme of martial imagery appears here in chapter four. And so you have in chapter two, you have in chapter four, and then you have it again in chapter 11 and 12. So I think, um, you know, this this theme is important because it keeps reoccurring, right? Yeah. So I hope that gets to your question. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, you know, um, we're coming very close to the end of our time. I, I want to ask you a practical question, if I may. Mm-hmm. We have a letter here where Paul has an apocalyptic outlook, which is almost like the Dead Sea Scrolls. You know, like there's light versus darkness, good versus evil. There's one side, there's the other side. If something happens, it's Satan attacking. And I'm sure you have experience with people, as I do, who go through their lives of faith with a similar apocalyptic outlook where, I mean, I've heard people say things like they can't find, literally, they can't find their car keys, Satan is attacking me, right? So how, I mean, if you have a student in your office or something or, you know, in church or whatever, how might you engage someone like that? Because, I mean, maybe we should still be thinking apocalyptically. I don't think so, personally, but maybe I'm totally wrong on that. But just how, how do you, like, how do you talk to people like that? Yeah. So I think what you're lifting up is the dangers of apocalyptic thinking. Like, there is some danger in attributing everything bad to demonic forces. Human beings have no agency, or we can't stop it because. This is just the work of the enemy and this is what has to happen. But I think if you read Paul, in my opinion, well, you see that that's even though he does have this apocalyptic framework where there are powers at work in the world, there's also a part that human beings play in the conflict, right? But you have to be careful with that, too, (laughs) because it's not that (laughs) it's not that. And, and I know that the history of reception of chapter 10 has not been good because you've seen people take up arms on behalf of God, right? But Paul says, these are not weapons, fleshly weapons, weapons that we make with our hands or we use. These are weapons, he says, that are mighty through God. And so there is a sense that we have to be very careful in how we talk about spiritual warfare and apocalyptic battle imagery, because it's not about me taking up 
arms against someone. That's not what Paul's talking about. But it's a, an element of the spiritual world in which we partner with God, whether it's through prayer or through fasting or whatever spiritual practices as you know, different traditions have different ways of doing this. But we partner with God and we partner with what God is doing in the world bringing about liberation. Because one of the things I think that's often lost when you talk about apocalyptic and Paul is what is this about? It is about God through Christ liberating the world from the powers of sin and death, which God has done in the cross through Christ and God will bring to consummation. And so it's understanding the apocalyptic conflict in those terms. The fight has come about, but it's come about through someone who was crucified. So that gives us another way to think about what power looks like, what it means war looks like. That shifts us. Yeah, it puts it in a broader context. Yes. A very much broader context. So, uh, um, there's a larger backdrop to the rhetoric that Paul uses here, I guess. Yes. And the apocalyptic has to be seen and read through the lens of a crucified Messiah, someone who battles with nails in his hands, someone who battles with nails at his feet and a crown of thorns on his head. Mm. I think that's a wonderful benediction for us to end Very Pauline benediction. Very, yes. Thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on and elucidating this uh, book for us. It was really, really helpful. Oh, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I enjoyed the conversation. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. You've just made it through another episode of The Bible for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, Faith for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Shaw. Can, we can easily forget this, that in the broader sense, the, um, sorry, your page is rustling. I'm it's sorry. distracting me. Uh, <laughs> uh, we, we actually brought Bibles today, I know. which we don't usually do. Um, well, I shouldn't say we. Pete brought his Bible because yeah. he's a good I Christian. have it memorized, um, but I don't want to intimidate <laughs> oh, Jared. Exactly. So. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I understand. <laughs>